Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So glad you're here and we're thrilled and all those that are joining us online and that's across the city, across our nation and around the world. We want to welcome you uh, here as well. Well, let's get right down to business. Today I'm carrying on the series I began a couple of weeks ago called Fear Factor. And week one we talked about the upside of fear. And I mentioned to you that there were positive fears. There are things that you probably should fear in life. You know, you should fear falling off of tall buildings. You should fear charging bulls. You should fear your mother-in-law moving in with you. There are things that are reasonable <laughs> fears, right? And uh, yet, you know, we get caught up in, in those things sometimes and forget that there's one fear that is more important than any other fear, a fear that's commanded in Scripture, and that is that you should fear the Lord. And we discover this, that if you will fear the Lord, there is nothing else you will fear, as Oswald Chambers said. And the fear of the Lord is, is so, so paramount, so important, that he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And so that was week one. We talked all about the upside of fear. Today I want to talk about the downside of fear. There's obviously more downsides to fear than there are upsides. I would say this. That fear is one of the single most destructive forces in the universe. When people fall into fear, they become paralyzed. When people fall into fear, you're going to discover today that they produce all kinds of misfortune in their own lives. And there must be a reason why the Bible includes the expression, fear not, 365 times in the scripture. What does that work out to? Anybody good at math? That would be one a day, wouldn't it? And I just wonder, I just wonder if God had that in mind. 365, fear not. So it would be like the one a day Flintstone vitamin. That you would take that fear not pill every single day and fear not whatever it is that's going to encounter you on a particular day. Uh, What would you do? I want you to just imagine for a moment. Let's take a moment. What would you do if there really was a fear not pill? That every morning you could wake up, take the fear not pill, and you would be a fearless person. What would you do? I would do extreme sports, wouldn't you? That's what I would do. Just for a little bit of amusement here at the beginning, i got to tell you, they're always inventing new extreme sports that look really interesting to me. I'm wondering if you've seen this new one. It's called recorte. It's a Spanish word, and it is a combination. The only way I can describe it is it's a combination of bullfighting and gymnastics. It's a real sport. I'm going to show you a real short video. It comes from the, the nation of Portugal. Run the tape. Here it is. You're going to enjoy it. I'm going to give that guy a 9 out of 10. If you miss, it's a 0 out of 10 because you're dead, right? That's <laughs> it's sort of a dangerous sport. I, don't you love the guy's swagger? He's, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. I just love the attitude. But that's not my favorite new sport. My favorite new sport, when I say my favorite sport, it's the, my favorite new sport that I don't do. 
right? Do you have those kind of sports? Here's my favorite new sport that I don't do. It's actually called speed riding, and it is a combination, no other way to describe it. It's a combination of snow skiing and parasailing, but in the old days, they used to parasail on skis. It's nothing new, and they would fly up as high as they could away from the mountain and contemplate the beauty of God's creation. That's not what this is. The whole point of this is to get as close to the ground as you can into the more dangerous situations, and, and if you can do something, fun, hit some things, all right? This is not retouched. This is not CGI. This is a real thing took place in St. Moritz. Here it is, speed riding. Honey, I'm home. <laughs> I, I just love that video. No joke, I've watched it like a hundred times. There's more to it than that, and I imagine myself doing it. But Kathy won't let me do it. She says I don't have the insurance for it. And, and you do realize this, that one mistake, and you're dead. That's how, that's how that works. Anyway, I'm not suggesting you go and take up uh, extreme sports. What I'm saying is that the scripture tells us that we have not been given a spirit of fear. You do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and, and, and sound mind, and that God has given us this spirit of faith. And so we want to look at that today, and the message is entitled, The Enemy of Faith. See, if I was to ask you this question, if I was to say, what's the enemy of faith? Most of you, nine times out of ten, people say, well, that's unbelief. The other one out of ten would say doubt. And those are not incorrect answers, but there is a better answer. And what we're going to discover today, that the opposite of faith is not actually unbelief. The opposite of faith is fear. And I can prove it to you today. And so what we're going to do, we're going to start with a text. We're going to go look at the story of Jesus. And uh, we're in Mark chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse um, 36. And it says this. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, listen to this carefully, why are you so, say it with me, fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love their response. After he says, why are you so fearful? They feared exceedingly. And I hope you didn't miss it. He's, he's mad at them. He seems annoyed at them to me. He's annoyed at them that they were fearful in the midst of this storm. 
And so when we look at this story, he didn't say, why, why do you have no uh, belief? Why are you so doubting? Why are you so unbelieving? That's not what he said. He said, why are you so fearful? And what we're going to discover today is that if there is a continuum, on one side you have faith, and on the other side you have fear. Because what fear is, are you ready for this? Fear is faith in reverse. See, what faith does is faith produces a positive outcome. Fear produces a negative outcome. Fear is something that actually believes the worst case scenario, whereas faith believes the best case scenario. So I have a little picture. I call it the faith fear teeter totter and I invented it and here it is and uh, this is how I visualize faith and fear working together. I see it as a teeter totter effect and you all understand how those work. I see unbelief I don't see it as the opposite I see it as a bit neutral when somebody doesn't believe there's nothing active about that. They just don't believe. They neither are, you know, believe this, they believe, neither believe that. They might not be fearful. They might not be faithful. We know all kinds of people that live their whole life, they muddle along in unbelief and just take life as it comes. You know lots of people like that, right? They're not necessarily faithful or fearful. And so the way I look at it is that faith is this extreme belief that God is going to do incredible things in your life, whereas fear is the belief that something bad is going to happen. Now, I want you to throw that up one more time for me, because here's what I don't want you to miss, is that you cannot be in faith and fear at the same time, right? If, it's a, if this, this teeter-totter is accurate, when you were in faith, you have no fear. When you were in fear, you have no faith. And that's what he accused the disciples of. He said, why are you so fearful? Why is it that you have no faith? Their teeter-totter had tipped way over to the side of fear. Now, I probably shouldn't show you this, but I'm going to anyway because it's so illustrative. And uh, there's this, I'm going to show you the picture. I'll tell you what it is. Here's the picture, first of all. This took place in, in uh, Switzerland. It's a group of uh, elderly gentlemen. You can see some of them have canes. They're almost all, every one of them old. And they came across this giant teeter-totter, and they thought, what fun it would be for us to climb up on it and give it a go. Now, you look at that picture, you think to yourself, what could possibly go wrong? Let me tell you what went wrong. The teeter worked out okay. It was the totter where they got into trouble. So I'm going to show you the totter, and here it is. Run the video. I know some of you are laughing. You should be cringing. You should be absolutely cringing. A bunch of these old guys falling down from six or eight feet. I mean, this was a terrible, terrible accident. I am pretty sure that tour guide got fired that day. What do you think? I mean, this was such a, such a mistake from the, from the get-go. And the reason I show you that video is not to, just to entertain you, although some of you clearly were. Uh, the reason I show you that video is to show you how fear works. What fear does is it puts us into this place. When you tip over to the fear side of things, all kinds of catastrophes start to happen because fear has power to create negative things in our life. And I'll give you an example from scripture that you all know, and it's the story of Job. Now, Job, we know, it was kind of an unfortunate situation. Somehow, some way, Satan got free run 
right? It was open season on Job. You remember the story. And he was allowed to do whatever he wanted to him except to kill him. And so he took on Job and he did all kinds of terrible things to him. He destroyed his crops. He destroyed his barns. He took his wealth. He destroyed all of his servants. He destroyed his health. He was covered in boils. Uh, He killed all ten of his children. And the only thing Satan left him with was his nagging wife. No, I'm just saying, like, I just tell you the story. Don't get mad at me about that. That's what, this is in the story. You go read it. And uh, I guess, you know, Satan sort of went and said, no, he can keep, he can keep the wife. And, and, of course, there's the three dopey friends. And I think you need them for the story because you have all this great interaction. So we look at this story and we go, poor Job, he lost everything that he had. And it was no fault of his own. Except when you read the story. And there's this little verse in there, and probably many of you can quote it. And this is what Job said. He said, the thing I have feared the most has come upon me. Did you hear that? You see, he wasn't completely innocent. He actually was fearing these things would happen, and these things actually came to pass. And at the end of the book of Job, we find him repenting. He wouldn't be repenting if he wasn't at some level culpable. Am I right? You don't repent for something if you're not wrong. And so he is repenting at the end of the book. The thing thing I feared the most has come upon me. And what we need to recognize, and I'm going to take a moment to drive this point home, is that fear has the power to create misfortune in your life. It has the power, like faith in reverse, to create negative results. And I'm going to tell you a little story from more contemporary history that's very dramatic. And it's the story of the Walendas. How many of you have ever heard of Flying Walendas? Today they're called the Great Walendas, and they're a high-wire act, one of the most famous. They've been around 100 years. Here's, their, here's them more recently. This is their signature move, by the way. It's a seven-person uh, pyramid. Uh, I don't know if that looks easy to you or not, but it's not really easy. It's extremely dangerous. There's been all kinds of injuries and, and problems that had it. They have been doing this move for 75 years. They're in the fourth generation of this family. Here they are 75 years ago. And I want to point out the man in the front on the second row. That's Carl Walenda. Carl Walenda was the patriarch of the Flying Walendas. Uh, it was him that dreamed this up. He's got his whole family up there. He's got his daughter on top. He's got his sons involved in this. And there are multiple generations. And they still have their act even to this day. But I want to tell you the story about Carl Walenda and his last high wire walk. He was 73 years old. I don't know if you should still be doing this at 73, just saying, but he was, it was 1978, it was in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. He strung a wire between two apartment buildings, 37 meters in the air, so well over 100 feet. And uh, here's a picture of him, and he's walking across, the television cameras are there, the photographers are there, there's a crowd of people in the street. And uh, he's walking along, and you can see he looks a little bit in distress in this picture. And then if you look at the next picture, he's lost his balance. And then in a split second, he falls. And he crashes to the ground 37 meters below on the pavement, and he's killed instantly. It's a terrible tragedy. It made for good, slush, horrible television, as you can well imagine. And so everybody, you know, mourned the death of, of, of Carl Willenda, those that knew him and, and, and loved him and appreciated him. And a few months after his death, his wife, his widow, spoke up. And she said something very interesting. She said, for the three months prior to this last walk, all he talked about, and he was completely consumed with the fact that he might fall. And this is what she said. 
She said, I believe he fell because he expected to fall. Wow. And, you know, sociologist Robert Merton called this the self-fulfilling prophecy. He was the one who coined that term. And he, he does, did research on this, and he found out that what happens when we believe or fear something is going to happen, oftentimes that very thing will happen, and it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. And he has lots of examples in his writing. One of his most famous uh, examples that we would all understand and know is the stock market. He says what happens is when people think the stock market is going to fall, when they think it's going to crash, when they fear it's going to crash, people start pulling their money out of the stock market, and guess what? It crashes. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And he's got all kinds of examples of this. One of the examples was the 1973 uh, oil shortage. Some of you remember this. Some of you are old enough to remember this. The OPEC nations, they did a, an embargo of oil in the West, and the whole world thought we were out of oil or running out of oil. Now, it wasn't actually true. There was oil in tankers and oil in storage and all kinds of things. But what happens when people think that something's happening, they panic. And so that's what they did. And so they were all running down to the gas station. They were filling up jerry cans and they were filling up their cars and there was huge lineups. Everybody was trying to fill their car at the same time. And guess what? It created this massive oil shortage and all kinds of problems that happened. Now to add insult to injury, this is kind of the funny part of the story. Uh, Johnny Carson goes on the Tonight Show and he decides in his stand-up routine to tell a joke about how the oil crisis is really creating a toilet paper crisis. It wasn't true. There was no toilet paper crisis. But he said so on The Tonight Show. So guess what happened the next day? You got it. Everybody rushed into the grocery store and bought up all the toilet paper and there was now a toilet paper crisis for absolutely no reason at all. And to think we might learn from history, but we didn't. So we went into COVID-19. You all know the story. We're going to have a lockdown. And the first thing that came to people's mind is I better go buy cartons and cartons of toilet paper. And they lined up at Costco and you've seen the picture. How much toilet paper do you need? That's going to last you 10 or 15 years. Why weren't people thinking there might be a food shortage? Because here's my point. You don't need toilet paper if you have no food. <laughs> yeah, you, you think about that one, right? There's a lot of funny things in life. I went out and bought one of those toilet brushes a couple of weeks ago. Long story short, I'm going back to paper. That was a mental image you did not want to know about. All right, how fun is that? So, so here's my point about fear. Fear is a destructive force, right? And here's what we know. Faith produces what you desire. Fear produces what you dread. Faith can move mountains. Fear can create them. So I want to go back to the story of the disciples here again. And I want to actually defend them for a moment because I want you to think about this. They have been on that sea their whole life, right? I mean, we know where the disciples were. They're all from, all, all 12 of them were from Galilee, the region of Galilee. And many of them were actually fishermen. How often did they spend time on that sea? Those fishermen were on that sea every single day of their lives. They were so aware of the conditions on that sea. And if a storm came up, don't you think they might have known what that storm could and possibly do? Of course, they knew they were not in an unknown situation. 
Now, we had the good privilege of, of being to Israel and going to the Sea of Galilee, and we went out on a ship. How many of you have ever done that? And so it's just a fantastic thing. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be just like Jesus. And I'm going to do everything Jesus did when he was here. So the first thing I did was I went fishing. So here I am fishing. I caught no fish, so I was more like the disciples than Jesus. In this picture, I am sleeping. Uh, in the, in, I, I'm in the bow of the boat. You'd think I, after all these years I could read scripture. I'm supposed to be in the stern, right? I read it wrong. And then the final thing I did, of course, was I walked on water, just like Jesus did. I was nailing that. And so when people say to me, you know, Pastor Mark, you're not very much like Jesus. I show them these pictures and I say, what are you talking about? I'm exactly like Jesus. You've seen me. You've seen Jesus. Most people not really buying that. So, Here's what I want to talk about for a moment. So these guys are on the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere they are every single day. If there's a storm coming up and they're in the midst of it and it's filling the boat and they think they're perishing, here's my question for you. Were they perishing? They were. They actually were in a, in a clear and present danger. That's my whole point. Was they actually the natural response for them? It wasn't like some unknown. They knew what they were facing. And here's the thing about humanity is that God has given us a very acute sense of a fear response. And some of you know who your, your, your neurology and those sort of things uh, know that they've actually discovered where the fear center is in your brain. And I'll show you a picture of it. It's this little almond-shaped uh, part of the brain called the amygdala. And uh, they know that that is the fear center. It's part of the limbic system. And what they've discovered, and the research has shown, is that if you look at this next picture, when you're frightened by something, that's a picture of someone being frightened. You see that? He's seen something really scary. And, uh, and he's frightened, and he sees it. And what happens with, through the visual cortex, it goes right to the amygdala and fires the fear response and it bypasses the rest of the thought process, you know, in the prefrontal cortex and those sort of things. And they've discovered that this is what happens. And you've all experienced this, right? Where you've seen something terrifying and instantly the adrenaline goes through your body and there's this flight or fight response that happens or, or, your, or your goofy friend, you know, he stood around the corner and you came around the corner and he jumped out and went, boo! And you jumped out of your skin and you didn't have time to think about it, did you? What'd you do? You jumped. And of course, now you've had time to think about it. You realize how much you hate his guts. And uh, you process it. But in that moment of fear, you don't actually have time to process it. Because it's an instant fear response. And guess what? God has given it. It's a defense mechanism for us. He has given it to us. And here's where the research is fascinating because there's a, a case study of a woman. She's a single mom of three kids and she had this weird disease, Urbach-White disease, and it destroyed only one part of her body and that was the amygdala. It literally dissolved her amygdala and they didn't know how she was going to function. They've done MRIs, there's no amygdala there, it's completely gone. And here's what was fascinating, all her emotions are in place. She can feel compassion and empathy and sympathy and love and caring for other people, but she has absolutely no fear response. None whatsoever. They put her in a room and they ran the Blair Witch Project, which people jump out of their skin at all the way through, and she just sat there looking at it and go, those poor people. And, and she was sympathetic, she had emotions towards it, but no fear response. Now, you can imagine this is going to get you into some trouble. Right? Because you do not identify or recognize dangerous situations. So here's what happened to her. She's in a convenience store, and there's a man 
holding up the clerk at, at knife point, she walked over to him and said, you know, young man, that's not very nice. <laughs> and he turned around and put the knife right to her neck and said, you shut your face or I'm going to cut it off. And she said, go ahead. <laughs> and then he thought, this woman's nuts. And he grabbed his knife and ran out the door and didn't rob the store. And I was thinking, this is Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. I've seen this movie, right? You don't care what happens. Now, you certainly don't want to end up like this woman, but here's the whole point I'm getting at and I'm driving at. So God gives us this natural fear response that every single one of us has. Would they get into this situation where the fear response uh, obviously kicks in because they're in a clear and present danger. Their ship is about to go down in the Sea of Galilee and they're all going to perish. And Jesus gets mad at them for doing what is natural. What's that all about? I'll tell you what that's all about. That's the whole point. You see, fear is natural and reasonable. Faith is supernatural and unreasonable. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to learn how to overcome our fears with faith. And that was the message he was trying to get across to the disciples. So we're going to take a few minutes here, and we're going to give you some ideas as to how we might be able to overcome fear with faith. So I'm going to throw them up on the screen. Here's three of them. Number one is you have to decide to live a courageous life, number one. Number two, focus on the promise, not on the problem. Number three, remember your past victories. So the first one is this, is you actually have to decide to live a courageous life. And I'll give you an example that you all know from Scripture, and it's the story of Joshua. Joshua was about to go into the promised land, a land that was overrun with giants and was highly defended and highly formidable, and he was going in, and God two times gives them instructions. Who remembers what they were? Be strong and courageous. And then he says it to him again, and he says, be strong and very courageous. Why did he tell them to be courageous? <laughs> it's not a trick question. Because he needed to be courageous. He was going to face an enemy. He was going to face fearful things. He was going to face all kinds of hardship. And he was going to have to be courageous. So when I read this, here's what I don't want you to miss. Is that courage is not an emotion. Courage is a choice. You can't tell someone who to be courageous if courage isn't actually a choice. You have to choose it. You have to decide in advance. See, he told him that before he went in. He didn't get in there and, and he's getting beaten up and says, oh, by the way, try to be more courageous. He told them before he went in. He says, you need to make the decision before you go in that no matter what circumstance you face and what adversity you encounter, you're going to do it with a courageous spirit. So I want to illustrate this with a personal story. And I've been very fortunate in my life that I've had very little ill health, and I give God the credit for it. He has just blessed me with incredible ill health, incredible good health. I almost never get sick. I don't get colds. I don't get the flu. I don't get COVID. It's just been like quite a blessing not to be sick. I, in my adult life, I don't think I've ever taken a sick day, except for once. And when I go, I go big. And let me tell you the story. So. So a number of years ago, I contracted this disease called blastomycosis. And there's only a few places in the world you can get it. One of those places is Kenora, Ontario. 
And uh, that's where I spend my summer vacation. And you get it by sniffing around in the dirt, apparently. And uh, you breathe in these spores of this, of this fungus. And what happens is it creates, it goes into your lungs. It turns into a yeast. And then it migrates through your body. And the weird thing about blastomycosis is it can um, imitate or uh, almost any other disease. Uh, it can go to the brain. Nine times out of ten, it goes to the lungs. And it kind of imitates like, you know, tuberculosis or pneumonia or something like that. But it can go under the skin. You can get subcutaneous sores. It can go to your liver. It can go to your kidneys and go, go wherever. So you don't, it's very, very hard to diagnose because it's moving through your bloodstream. And sometimes it will sit there for weeks and months, which has happened to me. I was asymptomatic for six months. And so I obviously got, you know, contracted it in July or August. And I wasn't symptomatic till January. And so nobody can figure out what this thing was. And it didn't happen. It, it, this is sort of an embarrassing part of the story, but I can tell you anyway. Uh, it ended up landing in my groin. And I remember my, my daughter at the time, Danica, the one you know and love, she was about grade three or something. And the teacher asked her one day, does anybody have something you want to pray for today? She says, you can pray for my dad. And they said, what's wrong with your dad? He's got a swollen crotch. <laughs> so she came home and told me the class was praying for her. I said, what? You told your whole class I had a swollen crotch? Like, really? Seriously? Kids, they're just such a blessing. And, uh, and so, so it was actually true. And so I was on antibiotics. And, of course, that's not going to work against a fungal disease. Finally, said, they said, we have no choice. We've got to go and slice you open and see what we can find. So they slice me open. And they're mucking around in there looking for stuff. And they pull out this growth. And I remember waking up from the surgery. And the surgeon said, he showed it to me. And, he said, and I said, what is it? He says, I have no idea. It's some sort of growth. I have no idea what it is. A week later, they got the pathology report back. And I've got blastomycosis is what it was. And he had never heard of it. I had never heard of it. Not very many people had heard of it. So for the next few months, I'm on an antifungal drug. And, and, and that was sort of it. And I fully recovered. And I was off work for three or four weeks or something like that. Uh, but anyway, I was fine. And, and, but here's what they told me. They said, now that you've had it once, you're more susceptible to it. You don't actually have an immunity. You're actually more susceptible like poison ivy or one of those things. And so your chances of it coming back are actually fairly high. And so... Anyway, I was fine until I went back to the lake. And then I'm at the lake and I'm thinking, I don't know where this thing is. I don't know where this spore is. I don't know where this fungus is. So I started wearing a mask before it was fashionable to do so. And I was wearing a mask. I was wearing goggles. I was walking around at the lake with gloves on, rubber gloves. And I was paranoid about this thing. And so then at the end of the summer, I had this burning in my chest. And I thought to myself, I've got it again. So I went back to the doctor and I said, I've got blasto again. He says, well, how do you know? I said, I know. I just know. I got it. I think I got it. And so there's no easy test for it. They have to do x-rays and CAT scans and all that. So they did all that and they said, you know, you, you don't have anything. And I went, oh, all right. Okay. So then the next year I went back. I still got this, this lingering fear in, in my head. And the next year I go back. And uh, while I'm, I'm there, again, I get the burning in my chest. And this time it's really burning. This time I went to the doctor. I said, I don't think I've got blasto. I know I've got it. He says, I don't think you have it. I said, look, I know more about blasto than you do. I've had it. You haven't. And <laughs> doctors hate these kind of patients, just for the record. And so I'm telling them I have it. So they run all the tests and the CT scan. And I'll never forget this day. I'm sitting down in the office with the doctor. My chest is burning. I'm thinking the sooner you get me on the drugs, the better. And I'm sitting there and he says, all your tests are clear. There's nothing wrong with you. 
And I went, huh. Anyway, I figured out what I had. It's called hypochondria. I, I realized I'd become a hypochondriac. And I had had this fear stir up in my heart. And every time I, I had the slightest pain in me. And here's the weirdest part of the story. Do you know that the next day I woke up and these symptoms I had for three or four weeks, they were all gone. It turns out they're all psychosomatic. It turns out the thing I feared the most had kind of come upon me, even though I didn't even actually have it. And I thought, that is the power of fear. And I thought, I can't live like this any longer. I can't live like this. I can't live with this sense of fear and this sense of dread and this sense that something bad is going to happen. So the next summer I went back and I said, I'm not wearing the stupid mask. I'm not wearing the goggles. I'm going to go and crawl around underneath the cottage without a mask on. Why are you doing that? Because I want to. And anyway, I haven't been sick with it ever since. Uh, You know, God bless God for helping me through that. But anyway, uh, you get my point. This is how powerful fear is. And this is why sometimes if we don't choose to be courageous, uh, we can fall into this trap. And I'll tell you something. This is kind of one of the things that bugged me the most about the COVID-19 was we had a very real pandemic. No doubt about that. Four million people dead, terrible disease, terrible pandemic. Uh, you know, you all know all the story and I'm not for a moment de- diminishing any of this. But while we had this global virus pandemic, we had another pandemic, a pandemic of fear. And we had the powers that be that fed us fear after fear after fear. The news media and, the, and, and some of the health, health officials and, of course, the politicians. And they just wanted to get through our thick skulls. And so what they used was fear and intimidation and coercion. And they just told us day after day there's going to be more cases and a surge upon a surge. And another wave's coming. And the next wave's going to be worse than the wave before that. And the variants are coming. And they're going to they're wipe you out. And it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated. There's another one coming. And we're going to have another lockdown. And and I looked at that and I thought, all we hear is, is all of these things, all of these negative things, this campaign of fear, and people were reacting and panicking and worrying. And I thought to myself, we have to do something, but fear and coercion is not the way you get through to people. And when they started closing down the provincial borders and we went through one of the checkpoints and the OPP turned us back at the Ontario border, I thought, really, I feel like I'm in uh, the Soviet bloc, Eastern Europe years ago, a checkpoint in my own country. And I can't even, I understand international travel coming in, but you can't move in your own country? I thought there's something wrong here. And I felt like we were being treated like children instead of like adults. And Thomas Jefferson once said this, He said, I know of no safer depository of the ultimate power of society than the people themselves. And if we don't think they are enlightened enough to exercise discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform their discretion. And you see, we don't have to be bombarded with fear. We need to be educated and have our our discretion informed. And that is what a free and democratic society is supposed to look like. And I'm not saying we, they shouldn't have done something. I just thought the swing towards fear was so profound. And as Christian people, I think most of us had a decision to make. Am I going to live by fear or am I going to live by faith? And I'm, I'm happy to say most Christian people I met, they did the right things and they acted appropriately. But they lived in faith, not in fear. Reminds me of this little story of this, this American. He goes for his COVID test. The doctor says, I'm going to give you the results. But before I do so, I need to know, are you a Democratic, Democrat or Republican? He said, well, what difference would that make? He says, well, if you're a Democrat, you've got COVID. If you're a Republican, you've got a hoax. <laughs> Just having fun. All right. 
So the first thing is this. You have to decide to live a courageous life. And it's the most important thing I'm going to say, but there's a couple more. And the next one is this. You've got to focus on the promise, not on the problem. I want you to think about this for a moment. These guys, they were in this storm. Absolutely, they were in a problem. They knew that. But they had Jesus in the boat. If you had Jesus in your boat, if you're out boating, you have Jesus in the boat, would you feel safe? Would it make a difference if he was asleep or not? If I'm out driving, I'm Jesus, my passenger, and he's in the back seat, I'm going to feel safe. Wouldn't you feel, how many of you would feel safe with Jesus in your back seat? Jesus in the flesh. I'm thinking, there's nothing that can happen to me. I'm going to start going through red lights. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> and I got Jesus in the back. And I don't, I'm kidding about the red lights. People always take me seriously. And I don't care if he's awake or asleep. I think he's just as powerful asleep, don't you? We learned that from this story. I'm going to feel safe if Jesus is in my boat. I'm going to feel safe if Jesus is in my car. It's like this. I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming in terror like the other four passengers in his car at the time. (laughs) And so what we have to do is, getting back to my point here, we've got to focus on the promises. See, when the children of Israel were going into the promised land for the first time, they didn't really know what to expect, so they sent the spies in, and the spies come back with this, this report, right? And the ten spies said, there are giants in the land, and they are stronger than we, and we are as grasshoppers in their own sight and also in ours. Is that true? Was there giants in the land? Yes. Were they stronger than them? Yes. All of the above. And so what they did was they focused exclusively on the problem instead of on the promise. What was the promise? This is the land that I am giving you. And if God has given you a promise, you need to go take that promise in faith, not be overcome with fear. And there was only two men in all of Israel, only two men, Joshua and Caleb, who stood up and said, let us go in at once for we are well able to overtake the land. There was only two men that looked at the promise. And so when we look at our own lives, Yes, you have problems. Yes, you have struggles. Yes, you had adversity. Are you going to focus on that or are you going to focus on the promise? And all of his promises are yes and yes and amen. So the first thing is this. You've got to decide to live a courageous life. Second thing is this. You need to focus on the promise, not on the problem. And the last and the final thing is simply this. You have to remember the past victories. Here's the thing that I think sometimes we forget. In Mark chapter 4, they're in this boat, they're in this storm. But here's the thing that the disciples forgot. Every single adversity they had encountered with Jesus, Jesus had overcome, right? They had seen healings and miracles and people raised from the dead and lepers cleansed and the blind and the lame healed. Why would they forget those things? Why have they forgotten who is with them? And a lot of times we do that same thing. We forget who is with us. And if we will remember the past victories. See, whatever you, there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever fearful thing you you encounter this week, you've probably been there before. If it has to do with your finances, it has to do with your health, it has to do with your relationships. More often than not, you've actually been there before. Why is it that we forget our past victories? And one of the great stories for me, and I tell it a lot, is the story of David and Goliath. And the the question in my mind is this, how did David, why did David think that he, this scrawny little shepherd boy, was going to be able to take on a warrior, a giant named Goliath? Why did he think that? 
He answers the question because Saul asked him that same question. He says, what makes you think you can deal with him? And then this is what David said. He said, when I tended my father's sheep, if a lion or a bear came after one of the lambs, I killed the lion or the bear, and I will do the same to this uncircumcised Philistine. He remembered his past victories and built on the past victories, he got his next victory. So we never forget what God has done. Let me just close with one quick final story about this. So a few years ago, we had this couple in the church and they were trying to have a child and they couldn't have a child. And they came up to me one night and they, uh, we were on a service, it was the end of the service, and they said, Pastor Mark, would you pray for us? We really want to have a child and it's not happening. I said, sure, I'd be happy to pray for you. And I prayed for them. And I don't, I don't even remember what I prayed. And they walked away. They said, thank you, walked away. And there was somebody who had overheard this story, this prayer. And he came to me and he said, you know, Pastor Mark, you prayed that they would have a child this year. I said, yes, yeah, so what? He said, it's the end of March. If they're going to have a child, it's got to happen like right away. I said, well, then they better hurry home then, shouldn't they? <laughs> right? Anyway, do you know that this couple had a child at the end of December of that year? And then he graduated from his course in university, and it was a particular specialty. There was only three jobs available in that specialty uh, all across Canada, and there was 30 graduates from across Canada, only three jobs. So he had only a one in 10 chance. He said, Pastor Mark, would you, would you pray for me? I said, sure, happy to pray for you. And he said, you know, last time you prayed, it worked out so well, and the timing was great. I said, sure, I can pray. So I prayed for him that he'd get the job. Sure enough, he got one of those three jobs. And then a few weeks later, he came and he said, Pastor Mark, we're moving to the city and uh, we can't find a place to stay. We've looked everywhere, can't find a place to stay. Can, can you pray for us that we'll find a place to stay? I said, seriously, don't you people know how to pray for yourself? Every time you have a problem, you're asking me. I said, I don't know how to pray any better than you do. I don't have some greater access. He says, yeah, but you've had such good results so far. <laughs> it's been two out of two and we think we can get a hat trick here. And, and, and so I said, all right. So I prayed for him and sure enough, the, the next day they got a place. And you know, whenever I think about that story, you know what? It had nothing to do with me. It had to do with their faith. See, they remembered the past victories, and if they knew that God had done it yesterday, he could do it today. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And see, there's all kinds of fears that we will encounter in this world, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, and he wants you to live by faith, and greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And if God be for you, who can be against? Let's stand together, shall we? All right, I want to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment, if you would. And uh, those of you online, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because this whole thing about faith over fear is all predicated on a relationship with Jesus. It all begins with getting him into your boat, which in our case means getting him into our heart. And so if you've never had that moment where you've made that decision for Jesus to come live in your heart as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And Right where you are, if that's you, and you'd like to make that decision to be a follower of Christ, I want you to just slip up your hand right now, right where you are. Just take a moment. If you're online, there's a little hand that pops up on the screen. And you do the same thing, and you just click on that hand. And by doing so, you're making that decision today to invite Christ into your life. And I want to lead all of us in a prayer. Those of you that are in the room, those of you who are watching online, those of you particularly who clicked that hand or raised your hand, we're going to say this prayer together. So let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That you have done amazing things. You died on the cross for my sins. You rose on the third day. You wiped away all my sins. And you created me a person of faith. And I pray this day that I will live by faith and not by fear. And that I will live in you. And I will lay a hold of all of that which you have for me. Not giving in to fear, but living by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.